Welcome to the second episode of the YYY podcast by Social Marie. This episode is very special. We begin with an amazing conversation about business models and social entrepreneurship. We talk about burnout and we end up with a fascinating interview where we touch topics like artificial intelligence and innovation. I really hope this episode fills your mind with inspiration. My name is Anna Misovitz. Um, I have a three months old baby and a two and a half year old son. I love to do do-it-yourself stuff like knitting, crocheting or macrame or writing, singing, playing the piano. I live in Vienna, but I was born in Budapest and moved here as a child. And I was working for Sozialmarie for eight years now, but I am on maternity leave at the moment. Thank you, Anna. Without you, this podcast would not be real today. Anna, as a project manager on Sozialmarie, has an immense experience and perspective on social entrepreneurship, social impact, social innovation. Dear Anna, what brought you here? Um, firstly, I was really excited about the whole podcast because um, we were developing it together for a while and thinking about it together for a while. And I was, to be honest, um, somehow curious to also be on it. Um, but it wouldn't have to be this time. <laughs> Why it's this time? Maybe it's because we were talking about the first episode and I listened to it while I was taking a stroll with my baby and I um, recorded a voice message to you in a windy surrounding, <laughs> letting you know what I was thinking about it and how um, great uh, I thought the first episode um, became. True. In the past episode, Jiva and Jovi talked about the importance of business modeling, especially in social innovation ventures. And you have seen so many initiatives and so many winners participating in the uh, Social Marie competition. So I'm completely sure that you have an interesting perspective to share about the importance of business models. Yeah, it's, it's complicated to... Um, sum it up in one way, I think, because um, the projects are so different contexts and countries and regions. What I see or what I observed um, a couple of times is that um, people doing these social projects or innovative projects um, kind of struggle to quote unquote make money because the social realm is not something that um, you can make a lot of money from so so it's it's not their fault that they don't find anything there to make money from but it's it's also our society and a context that does not give um, a big monetary value on social um, services and i think um, what they struggle with is that they are looking in this realm to to find something that can be um, economically beneficial for their project while um, 
if they would look a little bit outside of that context and maybe not think about how can we uh, attract um, financiers or big companies to support our project, um, but rather is there a part in our um, activities? Is there um, a skill set we can offer um, that people will pay for and not directly to run their project, but to um, gain some some funds? Um, and I, I have the feeling that some are um, some have it a little bit. It's easier for them to find that something to to um, to monetize. While in other contexts and for other issues, projects work on, it's really hard because it's it's a societal imbalance that um, leads to not valuing uh, that work as much as it should be. And uh, when we talk about organizations that are successful, what have you seen? So do they have something in common? What they have in common is that they maintain somehow their vision while failing a lot and adjust their vision or their activities to, to a changing environment. And of course, some projects are um, more successful because they have a bigger organization behind them. So the organization provides not just financial resources, but also other resources to grow a project. Um, but if it's not that kind of a background, I have the feeling it's often very passionate individuals who who have the ability to mobilize a lot of other people and to um, somehow um, create a vision that makes other people want to join them and work with them and who also think a little bit outside of the box and somehow touch a point in in society that needs attention and where people also want to want to pay attention to what you are saying is that successful organizations are not only focusing on the results or the achievements they want to get but they also pay special attention in building a system that is sustainable, that is self-sustaining. Am I right? Is that a correct assessment? Yeah, I would say that's, that's true, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's something additional that I observed that is that directly from receiving a training on business modeling, mm -hmm. it is easy to confuse that the business model as the result of the training course is just a superficial understanding of what the business is about, right? And I've seen organizations or new ventures bringing those business models mm -hmm. as if they were uh, uh, the holy grail. Instead, organizations that tend to succeed go far beyond mm -hmm. the business model itself. They go deep into finding out what does it mean to make their organization successful, funded, and self-sustaining. Would you agree uh, with that? I agree, and I would also say it's, it's um, from my point of view or what I observed during the years, those types of um, business doers that you described who 
who focus more on the or focus on the business model also and then the impact as well but not solely on the impact so that the business doers that um, focus more on the business models they come from an environment of um, incubators they have a a starting point that is already a bit more um, a bit better so to say or has more resources they they um, manage to get into an incubator program or they have studied economics and come from that field while other projects that rather expect the world to pay attention to the social benefit they achieve and also monet somehow fund that um, these people are so more likely social workers or people who, who who are activists or work in communities and and really focus on making circumstances better for disadvantaged group of people. So that's what I observe. Also what I um, heard or, or observed when we were doing the research for the trick project we were we are doing or we were doing um, this um, Erasmus funded um little project we were doing with um, Chromo Foundation is that women in uh, on maternity leave or after maternity leave while they they still cannot go back uh, to work even half time um, that that in this time while they are actually preoccupied with raising kids they start to find some kind of other goal they feel they need to work on and develop really great projects which i find actually very curious because it's a lot of work raising kids full time and um it's something that also is not valued as much as it should be in my opinion and um and it's interesting that some of some of these women then find a, a different type of work which then is also very female connotated from society in a way you know doing doing good for for some somebody or some groups that are disadvantaged i understand entrepreneurship as a process and it it is a process that takes a long time right in my case i began as an it person uh for more than 10 years i think 15 years and and then I decided to switch to social entrepreneurship, and um, during those years, I've 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 went through a lot of stuff, so ups and downs, investing uh, uh, more uh, money and er- energy than I had available, struggling here and there, failing, learning from the failures, getting to know myself much better, become becoming a different person, uh, until I found the moment where I could integrate these two aspects of myself, right? So one of them was the social entrepreneur and the other one was the IT guy. Uh, A process of 10 years and now I'm finally able to see that uh, getting a balance uh, so the distance between the ups and downs is each time smaller, uh, becomes much easier, right? So thinking about that, thinking about the process of entrepreneurship, what would you recommend anyone that wants to begin as a social entrepreneur 
as a social impact entrepreneur, as a, a social innovator? Well, firstly, I would recommend to look at our um, results from the TRIC project because we developed a very vast learning material on skills needed to do social innovations. So I would recommend that. It will be on our homepage. Secondly, I would recommend to, to be patient because social impact takes a long time. It's not something that works over, as you said, over a short period of time. Um, very often the societal transformation that we seek by, by um, doing social innova innovations or um, projects that have social impact or social businesses are not visible right, right after we started our activities. And if we define um, social innovation by something that leads to social change or social transformation, then it even takes longer because social transformation also means that certain structures change uh, for good. Um, I also would recommend to be aware that it's not like you are one actor in a big piece, so you can achieve a lot, but we are in a system that um, also neglects these types of activities or works. Like it's um, um, a lot of things social innovators do could be done um, by a political uh, system, by the state, you know, if the state would provide uh, more um, social services, um, if if um, society would be more, more fair, we would not need these um, social innovative projects. So um, I would recommend to be aware that you you are an actor in that system, in that context, and your activities will lead to change, but also cannot somehow, um, how do you say, um, make up for, for the lack of attention um, a, a big society um, has on certain issues. And, and also, um, yeah, I would also recommend to be sturdy because um, people from your field may give you um, positive feedback, but I, I also feel that um, a lot of others don't and you need to be you need to believe in yourself that what you do is good and, and important because um, you might um, yeah, otherwise get frustrated. I would recommend to be persistent because um, being social, socially innovative or active in that field is often not recognized as an important or um, worthwhile activity. And um, also the system we live in, the society we live in, or societies we live in, very often do not um, um, want to create a good path for you or an easy path for you. Being persistent and um, altering your tools and your and learning new skills to achieve your goal um, is, I think, um, important and definitely good to have. Once I asked a group of um, professors business professors, why did we invent the practice of business? And after a lot of discussions, they concluded that the reason why we do business is to support ourselves and support society, to develop ourselves and to be better. 
social entrepreneurship is not different. So we do social entrepreneurship, social innovation to solve problems. And that means that we should consider that our practice should never sacrifice our health and our mental health. In a research led by the Social Impact Award and the University of Vienna at the Faculty of Economics and Business, found that over 40% of social entrepreneurs experience some level of burnout. So please keep this in mind. We don't need to burn out in order to save others. We need to be okay to help others to be well. Business modeling is essential for entrepreneurship. But what about innovation? Isn't that another of these concepts that are a bit tricky and difficult to understand? What is the process of innovation? How can we build organizations that focus on innovative approaches? My friend Veronika Yanirova cares about innovation and many other topics. And this time, she got the opportunity of speaking with university professor Markus Peschel. He is an Austrian cognitive scientist, philosopher of mind, philosopher of science, and researcher on innovation. He is professor for cognitive science and philosophy of science at the University of Vienna in Austria. Veronica, the floor is yours. Hi, Markus. We are uh, quite curious to learn about your various approaches to the process of innovation. Could you tell us something uh, a bit about your personal journey, intellectual journey? Okay, my intellectual journey actually started with a school which was rather humanistic. But then, you know, for my studies, I turned to computer science. So I studied at the University of Vienna, at the Technical University of Vienna, um, and did there like computer sciences was back in the 1980s, 1985, approximately, plus minus. So at that time, computer science was still like a little bit, you know, of course, not esoteric, but it was like, uh, you know, it's not not every day, um, and but at the same time, um, I already studied in parallel here at the University of Vienna um, some psychology, some philosophy, actually meteorology, um, biology. So I was really, you know, I tried to really. This was still possible there because nowadays, you know, we have to be mm -hmm. quite straightforward with mm -hmm. um, with um, uh, studying, and um, and then I finished my studies, made my PhD. And already during my, you know, during the end of my studies, I, I turned into the field of artificial intelligence and more specifically into neural networks, which is now like the big hype mm -hmm. when we talk about ChatGPT and mm -hmm. these kinds of things. So already then, this was like 30 years ago, you know, I, I, I did a lot of, of you, know, um, you know, theoretical research on, on, on these things. And there my interest started to, uh, to grow into the, in the question of, you know, what is cognition, what is knowledge, 
um, how do we learn and these kinds of things. So I started to study or to, to engage in cognitive science. And for my postdoc, I was then um, in the United States and, and at UCSD, so this in San Diego, University of California in San Diego, which was at that time that place to be for cognitive science or for neural networks. And there I learned again, you know, a lot of philosophy, neuroscience, um, and of course, computer science, these kinds of things. And um, yes, then I came back to Vienna um, uh, and had, you know, and, and, and started here at, at um, the Technical University and then at the University of Vienna and got more and more into cognitive science. And actually what we did here is we established a cognitive science program and a lot of research a whole research, you know, now it's called um, Cognitive Vienna Cognitive Science Hub. Um, and um, approximately 15 years ago, I started to get interested in the question of how does novelty come about? You know, how does innovation come about? What is innovation? And how are like, how are we as humans? How can we be creative? So this is most like the, the, the things which, uh, you know, I did for the last 15 years. Um, and um, now I'm here um, and uh, doing research mainly in the fields of innovation, of you know how innovation is related with cognitive science and um, how organiza organizations have to be designed so that they become more innovative. Mm -hmm. So that's very, very, very briefly. Oh, one thing we are also interested very much in the, in the question of how how like what we call enabling spaces. How do you have to design? spaces but not only physical spaces but in general uh, organizational spaces so that you know these organizations or the people living there or working there um uh, can get more innovative mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. get supported in their knowledge work mm -hmm. you mentioned uh, the emphasis on cognitive science could you tell us in which way did cognitive science help you to understand innovation or innovation processes, what is the what did you what can you learn from cognitive sciences? I think it's crucial because normally when they think about innovation, most people think about technology or some economic stuff. Um, so this is like the main focus on 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 innovation nowadays. But in the end, when you look very closely, in the end, it's always people or humans. Mm -hmm who are innovative. Mm -hmm. So if you want to understand innovation, at least to my understanding, one perspective, which I think is very important, is to say, okay, what kind of cognitive processes are responsible for bringing forth novelty? Mm -hmm. How are we creative? How can we create some kind of novel knowledge? And how can we bring this knowledge into the world? And this is a core business, under quotes, of cognitive science. Mm -hmm. Cognitive science is studying cognitive processes. Um, it's studying the relationship with the world. It's studying how do we engage with the world? How do we produce artifacts in the world? How do we produce, you know, interactions, social interactions? How is culture involved in the whole thing? So in that way, cognitive science is at the very core, um, if you want to understand what innovation is about. Mm -hmm. And, and now from your experience and also expertise, what would you consider the main ingredients for a, let's say, successful innovation process? What are the main ingredients in your view? It depends on where you look, I think. From this people perspective? From, the, from, the, from a cognitive perspective, I think 
there are lots of things. <laughs> but I think one of the key ingredients or key sources of innovation is like a question of attitude or a, a question of mindset. In the end, at least to my understanding of innovation, it's very much about openness and receptivity. So this means that in order to be innovative or creative, you first of all have to be open or receptive to what, what is out there in the world. What do you find out there? And what can you do with this world? And how can this inspire your own thinking, your own perhaps also emotions, but your own you know, creativity so that you can bring forth something novel? So in that sense, I would say this seems to be one of the core things. And of course, this is very somehow fluffy, but it's something which you can also train. Uh, so it's it's not something which you say, okay, mm, we're just talking about openness. Mm, it's nice. Yes, I'm open now. But yes, somehow. But in the end, it's very much about what kind of attitude towards the world, towards your you know other people, towards your culture, whatever is around you, do you have? And are you and how and you you are you're able to train this kind of openness with various you know techniques, uh, methods, and so on. Mm -hmm. And now, if you if you think about the, the organization as such, what are the main features or uh, characteristics an organization should have to facilitate or to help this process? Um, so, the, the previous question was about the individual mm -hmm. dimension. Now I would, we are talking about like the organizational or the social dimension. Again, here it is somewhere between skills on the one hand. And culture, I think this is what, or, or mindsets on the other hand. And here again, you know, it is, of course, it's no surprise, it's again about openness or like how receptive is the organization as a whole to the world. Uh, and the question is, how do you realize that? And so this is a cultural issue. And, you know, there are, there are many things like, um, does this organization understand itself as a learning organization, for instance? How are we dealing with errors? Mm -hmm. uh, how are we dealing with things which don't fit into our expectations or into our hypothesis about the world? You know, each I you know I consider an organization as a living organism, which or as a cognitive you know, or organism as a whole, um, which has some hypothesis about the world. And whenever we are doing, I don't know, some you know, producing something, uh, be it, you know, a, a physical product, a service or a social service, you know, in your case, it might, in many cases, I guess, be like, you know, social support or social services. So people working there, you know, individually, but also collectively always have some hypothesis. They have some, um, a kind of, of um, how should I say, worldview on what the world is supposed to be out there and what they are providing it for, or what they're providing for. And that is something which you have to question at some times, mm -hmm. because if you want to innovate, you have to break up these mental patterns mm -hmm. uh, or these this, this, this mental images. And this seems to be one, one, of the, one of the core you know, capabilities of an organization to first of all reflect uh, what is my worldview and then to understand, okay, if this is my worldview, then I'm looking at the world with a specific pattern and what doesn't fit into my pattern doesn't exist. Uh, so if you want to be innovative, you have to break these patterns up 
so that something novel might come into the organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. So this applies both to the individual and to the organization. Mm -hmm. And so I think this is a key, capa a key capability. So when we talk about openness, this is one more concrete thing which an organization has to be capable of. And I think this has a lot to do with culture because in the end, it's very much about are you allowed to um, question patterns? Are you allowed to question premises? Are you allowed to... Um, to reframe uh, whole ways of thinking, both individually, but especially or, you know, on, on, on the organizational level. In one of your uh, lectures recently, you emphasized the role of trust, uh, which is uh, like a major ingredient for innovation processes. Mm. Why is this the case? Why is trust so important for innovations to evolve? Okay. This is an easy but also difficult question, I think. Because first of all, we have to see that innovation has all at least two dimensions or in an innovation process. An innovation process, first of all, is a knowledge process, an epistemological process. And secondly, it is also a social process. And when we are doing innovation, we are like negotiating novel meaning. Uh, so what, what we are doing, so innovation is... Of course, in the end, it's always an individual, but we are always like like what we are doing right now. We are going into a kind of dialogue or, or a discussion, more of a dialogue, and what we try to find out: how do you think about things, and how can we break this, you know, things up, perhaps? And um, in order to do it, uh, this is a, this in order to to get into kind of this kind of social interaction, you need to have a trustful atmosphere, because if there is no trust you do not dare saying something which you are not sure of, mm -hmm. for instance. So if you have just an intuition, and it might even sound very weird to you at the first moment, so you have to have a lot of trust to somebody else to, to, to make that expert to, 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 to tell this idea or this intuition some, to somebody else. Mm -hmm. so, in, so this is just a very, very simple example, but it's critical when you look at organizations because in organizations you have in many cases, like hierarchical structures, you have power structures and these kinds mm -hmm. of things. And if this is a very rigid structure, then people, you know, don't dare voicing their intuitions, their perhaps sometimes old ideas or not so interesting, or they, they think it's not so interesting ideas. So you have you are losing a lot of potentials which 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 would be mm -hmm. there. So in that sense, trust is somehow on the one hand, the glue which holds together the organization or is a social system, but at the same time, it's also the driver for driving forth, you know, or driving innovation. Mm -hmm. A lot of debates about innovation uh, center around this disruptive innovation mainly, like, I don't know, the car, the mobile phone, electricity, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, many of these disruptive innovations have been uh, developed and were then basically lying somewhere in a cupboard or sleeping for many years before they really, uh, how to say, crashed the world. Why is this the case? Why do some innovations or ma some particularly major innovations mm. sleep for such a long time until they uh, come to life? Come to life, yes. <laughs> I think this is. It's quite interesting. This is a really interesting question. 
Um, this has something to do what is called the innovation paradox. So let's look. What do you want when you when when you're innovating? You know, the most you know the the easiest form of innovation is like okay. I'm doing something like I'm just improving things. Mm -hmm. So this is like what's incremental innovation. So this is not mm -hmm. what we're talking about mm -hmm. here. But actually, what you want in most cases is you want to something want to want to have something which is radical, disruptive, you know, completely new, which you didn't expect. But this is this is a pro this has a problem. Mm -hmm. The problem is exactly what you were saying. This has to do with with your question. The problem is that if the, no, the, the level of novelty is too far out, mm -hmm. uh, then people don't understand it. Technology isn't ready. The organization itself, which is responsible for that, is not ready. Mm -hmm. The whole culture is not ready, and you know the whole you know you know environment, the whole ecosystem around it is not prepared for mm -hmm. that. And so this is what is called the innovation paradox. So on the innovation paradox is. That on the one hand you want to have something really far out, and at the same time it does not fit into mm -hmm. into the into into the world, mm -hmm. and that's why these things are lying around. Mm -hmm. So, you know, turning things around, the critical thing or the challenging thing in that in that respect is to find exactly this right level. Uh, and there is you know, actually I think it comes from. From from uh, aesthetics, I'm, I'm not sure. Or from design, a, a principle which is called the Maya principle. So most advanced yet acceptable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what you're looking for, actually, and this is the, the the real challenge, is what is the most advanced, uh, you know, idea, but which is still acceptable by you know by the users or by the company or who are, you know whoever at, at whichever system you're looking mm -hmm. at. And if you find this like right level, then you know, then you are on the winning side, so mm -hmm. to speak. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that's the interesting thing. I but of course, this is the real challenge because when it's it's really hard to really hit the right thing. Uh, so it's like it's like um it's really like finding you know, it's like Kairos. No, it's finding the right thing or developing the right thing at the right right time in the right place. Mm -hmm. Uh, so this is this is like an old Greek, you know, mm -hmm. concept, uh, uh, and it's exactly it's exactly what we're talking about here. Mm -hmm. We have actually we have talked about uh, innovations from an individual perspective, from an organizational perspective, and now we are sitting at the University of Vienna at the Faculty of uh, Philosophy. Uh, how is it about uh, the innovative, uh, how to say, capabilities? of the university itself i mean university itself it's theoretically it's a it's a major hub as for the whole society it's a it's thought to be a major hub of innovations and uh, new ways of thinking and new ways of also producing traveling living why do many innovations remain stuck in the ivory tower of universities what would be necessary to exploit or to tap upon the innovations that are being created within, for example, your university? Okay, difficult question, <laughs> tricky question. Um, first of all, I think a university is really, I think, one of the coolest places to be, mm -hmm. apart from, you know, 
extreme overloads, especially in administration, these kinds of things. But let's leave that aside for a moment. In a way, I think the original idea of a university or of academia, I would say, let's make it a bit more broad, is to um, understand the world mm -hmm. and to bring forth new ways of looking at the world. Mm -hmm. I think that's at least my understanding. So on the one hand, this would be innovative or this is innovative or this is already driven by an innovation mindset. Um, so this is one side. The other side is that if you look at the, from, from a, a systems perspective, like what are the systems or the processes which are like behind science? Science has some kind of intrinsic or is intrinsically conservative somehow. This is a very positive thing because you are very cautious not to just make claims mm -hmm. which you know cannot be supported by evidence or by some arguments or whatever you have. Um, but on the other hand, it also limits the way how you are allowed to work. Uh, it limits also the way what kind of, I don't know, methods you might use, what kind of experiments you might make, what kind of authors you might use, how you are applying for grants, how you are writing papers, how you evaluate it. So it's a whole system which is actually rather conservative. Mm -hmm. So you're always like in, 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 you have to balance somehow how far do you want to go with your novelty and how far are you allowed to do it so that you're still accepted? It's a way, in, in a way, it's similar with this innovation mm -hmm. paradox. Yes. Yeah? And um, in a way, of course, the university could be, and many cases is, a place where real novelty might appear, um, but it's hard to push that through. So this is one aspect. The other aspect is this question, why does it stay in the ivory tower? I think this has something to do with the with university structures and also with, in some cases, also with the self-understanding of scientists. Mm -hmm. So scientists, um, in many cases, so this is now a very general thing, so it mm -hmm. does not, for sure, not apply it. Everybody, but in many cases, scientists understand themselves as um, being engaged in basic research. Mm -hmm. And so really, they burn for the phenomenon which they're interested in, mm -hmm. and they don't care about what possible applications does mm -hmm. it have? I mean, I'm, I know this is now very black and white, but I think if you have like a, a kind of real fire for what you're doing, then you are very much into, into the field where you're working. So in that way, there is no particular interest in saying, okay, how can these things be, you know, useful for, mm -hmm. I don't know, so social thing or society, economy or whatever you have. So, you know, this is one way. And I think universities at least uh, I would say in Austria for sure that's what I know but I also know in you know of course you know Europe in many cases are not very much not yet I would say not yet involved very much in what is called this translational research mm -hmm. a part of course of technical universities mm -hmm. and you know more applied universities but like like the good old universities very much still you know very much kept in this um, I would say this academia and this academic pro academic processes, um, which only like the whole thing is, is like can be subsumed under this um, term or this concept of third mission. So mm -hmm. this is what the, what like mm -hmm. how does the university impact society? Mm -hmm. um, and um, it's only I think 
since perhaps five or ten years that at least in Austria, okay, this has this limitation, uh, at least in Austria, that this aspect has become more important. Mm -hmm. And I think we are on the rise of that. Uh, and I think in, in at least here also at the University of Vienna, for instance, there is a whole um, a unit which is just concerned with, um, you know, knowledge transfer, which is, mm -hmm. which is concerned with entrepreneurship and these mm -hmm. things but this is still in very in, in in its very very infancy mm -hmm. and i think we have to really learn a lot about and also to learn how we can raise the awareness and also the value of these kinds of things mm -hmm. uh, for the scientists who are working here and and because at least this is my own experience because i'm also working like in practical project or applied projects um this gives you a whole new perspective on your own research mm -hmm. in the end because it really brings what you're doing into the field and you're confronted with completely new problems but also with new ideas mm -hmm. so this is a way if, if you really get into this kind of feedback loop you know you have your theoretical constructs then you have your like experimental things if you do um, uh, empirical sciences but you also have like the you know the ecological setting or the ecosystem which is around you mm -hmm. and and are you know testing or you are uh, co-creating something with with whatever your phenomenon or your that the people you're working with um then this becomes really interesting because suddenly you see on the one hand what is the value of your theoretical things but also what are the limitations and what can you learn now we are back to openness what can you learn from these unexpected things which you don't find out of the, you know, normally in the, in, 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 in your lab settings mm -hmm. or in your academic settings? Mm -hmm. I see. Well, it's, a, it's a, an exciting journey to cross the boundaries of your own this, uh, sector, yeah. right? It's, For sure. Uh, I mean, that's... And it, I think in the end, you know... Taxpayers are paying here for mm -hmm. a lot of money mm -hmm. for 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 us as scientists, mm -hmm. and that's that's the least we can do in a way. We will, Professor Marcus. I'm very curious about your perspective on artificial intelligence (AGI) in relation with uh, the university. Is something going to change? Is something already changing? Uh, we are having you know, huge discussions, you know, endless discussions since since the start of, you know, when, when, when uh, for instance, ChatGPT appeared, I think it was in November 2023, and we immediately started a discussion on that. And um, we're having, honestly, difficulties in how to deal with it. Because in the end, uh, what we have, what, you know, what, what, what we are experiencing here is a, I should say, a cognitively semi-autonomous agent with lots of limitations, but still, I would say, on a bachelor level with quite some um, capabilities. And, you know, it's really hard if you have an understanding of, I don't know, teaching and learning as a kind of uh, co-creation uh, and, a, and, a, and a kind of autonomous thinking process where students produce their own thoughts. 
and, and their own arguments and their own ways of thinking. And it's very hard to, of course, to discriminate, you know, whether it's really their own thinking, because on that level, on that level of knowledge, which is not too specialized, uh, when you're like doing a PhD, this is really hard to mimic. Uh, master's level, uh, it's getting yeah a little bit difficult, but on that level, it's really hard to to make a clear distinction. You know, is it your, now your own thought or your student, the student's thought, or uh, is 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 it, is it has it been done by 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 a machine? Because the technology has become so advanced and so sophisticated and also creative to some extent. I don't claim that it is fully creative, but um, it's. Uh, for us, it's a real big problem. And in a way, yes, we could go back to uh, very simple, you know, uh, learning by heart tests, but which is complete nonsense in, in the context of university. So I think what we have to do, we have to change rather into uh, a perspective where, you know, it's about how can we make use of these technologies in our own thinking process and you know the current you know take on that is very much the idea to say we are focusing more on the process of creating these you know our our, our knowledge products rather than only on their results uh, and to document it and to see how can we make use of these technologies in a more creative manner so that the quality the overall quality becomes better but of course it's it's always a border this, we, are all, we are always dealing here with border cases. Uh, and, and, and this makes things really difficult because you can even mimic such a process uh, so on, on, a, on a meta level. So that's why I think it's, it's, really, it's really a hard thing. And yeah, that's uh, very, very briefly. Before publishing this podcast, Professor Marcus reached out to tell us that there is a precision to make. He made a mistake. ChatGPT was launched in 2022, not 2023. Dear Veronica, dear Professor Marcus, thank you so much. Veronica is a research manager with experience in European Union projects, social innovation, and knowledge transfer. She feels at home at the intersection between academia, government agencies, international and civil society organizations. Wouldn't it be amazing if the best practices, experience, and knowledge from successful social innovations transform themselves into training programs or training materials that support other people to create competencies? Well, there is a project that did that. It's called Trick. And that means transferring social innovation into competencies. There's a link in the description under this episode. You can follow it and download free materials that are really super interesting for anyone is looking for some inspiration. Trick is an initiative of Social Marie and the Chromo Foundation. The second episode of our podcast, Why, 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 is about to end. But before doing that, I would like to leave you with one question to reflect upon. What do you think it takes 
or a social innovation to become a success. Get yourself a tea or a coffee, buy yourself an amazing chocolate, think about it and take notes. And if you want, share them with us. It would be amazing to know what's your take. This is Jose Antonio Morales, your host, and I'm saying goodbye. I hope you enjoyed.